You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. So you were saying why you wanted to have Fotini Iconomopoulos on. The reason that I wanted to have her on as a negotiation expert is primarily to help you. Uh, you've got to do some heavy duty negotiating to get some women to go out. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking this could do nothing but help. (laughs) Whatever tips and tricks. I hate this so much. I hate this podcast. (laughs) Whatever tips and tricks could be useful for you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Wow. You've always been looking out for me. I, I am. I got your back. I got your back. She's the author of Say Less, Got More. And uh, so let's get more, excuse me. And uh, so she's going to share with us some tips on negotiations. I'm looking forward to that conversation. <laughs> We're here. We made it. Hey, how are you doing? Patina? Hi, gentlemen. We're fantastic. I'm great. How are you? I, I was actually looking forward to talking to you. I, I had... Uh, connected with you and uh sent your information over to to morgan i said i i never want to talk to to her about negotiation because it comes up a lot in conversations that sanger and i have yeah we're <laughs> always being here. we're always negotiating with each other you know we're just we're just <laughs> i can only imagine <laughs> fighting over everything all the time <laughs> so negotiations you know i think that that's w- one area of life that it can, it can go everywhere. It can go as, as you can apply that skill as broadly as you want. But w- when you think of negotiations, what do you, w- what caused you to really make this a focus? Uh, it was, it was, I call it accidental. <laughs> um, so I didn't realize that I was doing it as much as I actually was. Um, so I, in a corporate world, I was, I was working with Walmart on a regular basis, whether it was my time in sales at L'Oreal or my times in sales at Smuckers and so on. And then it was a company who was hired to train us to be better negotiators who went, you should really do what we do. And I was like, yeah, sure. Someday when I've got more experience and they went, no, seriously. And when I started to dig in deeper into the subject and really understanding it was just, it was the psychology of communication. It was really understanding how people function. And when I Think back to my MBA, you know, I studied organization behavior because I figured I can learn a lot of finance stuff and a lot of the the quantitative things from a book, but the study of people is the common denominator for all the successful folks that I saw around me. And having a conversation with people really is the best way to get ahead in anything you want to do. And when I reflect on it, I mean, it's not, it's a running joke in my circle that I've been nicknamed the negotiator by my dad when I was a kid, because if you grew up like me, if you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that was my life to a T. When you have a strict big fat Greek dad, you need to negotiate your way out of the house, like to go to friends' houses, to go away to university, to go to prom, to do all of those things. It was just constantly me refining those skills that I was using, you know, later on in boardrooms and with friends and with managers and with peers on a regular basis. So I have the luxury of being able to study it on a daily basis and dig in deeper, I'd say, than most, but I've been practicing it for a really long time without realizing how in depth Is there something unique about Greek culture that you found that makes negotiation more you know, important. And, and that sounds almost like a silly question, but you know, anyone who's traveled has been into a little shop to try to buy a, you know, 
little trinket that they're going to take home, place on their shelf, and and remember their trip to Croatia by for the next twenty years. And and I always get shocked at how people in those different corners of the world transact in those in those areas. It's yeah. almost expected. Think, it seems like yeah, some places think, they definitely want you to. Well, that's just it. I think for me, it's exposure, right? So I always had the exposure of doing it. My parents are immigrants, so they came from different cultures when they came to Canada. And so it was normal for them to do it because if you ever go to a market in Greece, you're negotiating the heck out of everything, like for your tomatoes or whatever it is that you're buying when you're when you're in an open market like that. So it was normal and part of our vernacular to do it. So when I negotiated my first mortgage or something like that, and someone said to me, you could negotiate your mortgage. I'm like, you thought you couldn't? Like it was normal for me to go down that path because I've watched, you know, my parents do it in Canada for so long. And then when I would go and visit Greece, it was totally normal for me to participate in it. So then when I started traveling on my own and going to Asia and going to South America and all these places, it was just another skill that I had that was completely normal to use. Whereas I don't know that in North American culture, we're quite as accustomed or we automatically think about doing it in yeah, some Yeah, I'm not sure if you'll agree with this, but to me, it seems like there is, it's very common for us, at least in North America, to be apprehensive about initiating a negotiation. But what I found, at least in my personal experience, that there isn't, it's not like the other person ever is offended by that negotiation. That happens far less than my own fear of the negotiation beginning. Yeah. And that is a very common sentiment. I mean, that's why people come to me all the time. They're worried. What is the other person going to say? And part of my, my job, part of how I coach people is to go, well, how do you mitigate that risk? What is it that you're going to be doing or saying that is going to be so offensive? And most of the time, we're not going so far beyond into insulting territory. Um, you know, you have to be a little bit mindful of, you know, if you're going into a salary negotiation and you want to get a $100,000 salary, you don't go in asking for $200,000. Laugh you out of the room. That would be, you know, ridiculous. And you don't want to look foolish. But there are so many instances where our gut instincts will lead us to a place that's completely reasonable. Well, people will go, look, that's not what I'm capable of, but here's what I am capable of. If you go in there with an arrogant demeanor about you, then odds are it's going to not be received very well. But those aren't the norm when it comes to negotiation, even though that's might be what we see in pop culture. We see it in movies, we see it in TV shows and things like that. It's fiction. It doesn't actually happen like that most of the time. But when we see that image in our pop culture, that I, th I think is what is holding so many people back from wanting to attempt what is a completely reasonable negotiation. I, th I think you're so right. And I, I think, Sanger, there is that fear that if I try and negotiate that, am I going to look, you know, cheap or am I going to look like I don't really have business acumen because God, why would you even ask that question? Uh, how do you know when it's appropriate to negotiate and versus when not to? Well, I'd say it starts with asking questions. It starts with going in and being curious. So who are you dealing with? What is the norm for this person? What are some of their boundaries? Start asking them questions like uh, about their business and, and who they work with and what their working style is like. And you're going to get to know a little bit more about what some of their boundaries might look like or where you can push some of the limits a little bit more. And there's other places where it's really low risk. Like I, in my book, I talk a lot about, I use one example over and over again, because it 
came to mind when I was traveling through Thailand and, you know, I see tourists buying elephant pants. When you're going into those places where you're never going to see this person again, the person who's selling you the elephant pants or a souvenir on a beach in Mexico, you're not going to deal with them ever again. It's very low risk. So why wouldn't you try it when the risk is a little bit higher when you're talking about potential employers or potential clients and, and folks like that, then you're going to ask a few more questions before you leap in to make sure they understand, hey, here's where I'm coming from. I want to make sure we maximize value here. What can we do to maximize value together? I have some ideas. You know, Do you have any ideas you want to bring to the table? So it doesn't have to feel like this combative, I'm going to be jumping into my offer and their offer type of thing. It can look quite different in different circumstances. Yeah, and it was talking. Singer, just to be clear, elephant pants are not pants you put on elephants. So just uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, you for, for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you might miss. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a friend about an um, you know, issue that I was dealing with, and I, I asked him this question. I said, am I, being, am I being narcissistic in this interaction that I'm having with this other person? And he said to me, you know, I don't think that someone who is a narcissist would ever ask that question. And I think that the that that kind of applies in the same way to negotiations. Like I'm scared of looking like looking cheap or looking like a jerk or looking like I'm ungrateful or whatever. It's like, hey, someone who is ungrateful is probably not super concerned about appearing to be ungrateful because they don't even know they don't know that they're ungrateful, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're not consciously saying I am ungrateful <laughs> for my employer for what they've done or whatever it is. They just are ungrateful. Um, and that can kind of hold us back from a lot of the things that we might want to do or say because we're worried about being perceived in a way that we would never be perceived because we're already aware of that risk in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that self-awareness is almost a double-edged sword because the greatest negotiators I know are extremely self-aware. They are conscious of how am I being perceived by others? Um, and that, so if I, you know, what is it that that person would deem as ungrateful? What is it that, that that person would deem as greedy? And how do I work within those boundaries? What can I do to minimize that perception? So it's thinking about how is this other person thinking and feeling right now? And you're right, a narcissist really isn't all that concerned about it. They're just concerned concerned about navigating things to get their way. And they don't really care who they plow down in that process. I do a lot of reading and learning about, I encounter quite a few narcissists, but I also spend a lot of time studying them. So it's an interesting subject area. Okay. I'm taking that as an official diagnosis that I'm, I'm, I'm all good. That you're good to well, go. I'm not a, I'm not a trained no, psychologist. No, uh, no. I, I heard you say it. You said you're not a narcissist. <laughs> don't crawfish on it now. Yeah, you know, you gave it, it the award. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think we all do some, there's some negotiation in all of our interactions. If, you know, it, it, as an advisor, um, you know, I don't really negotiate with clients, but you know, I, I, ha I think you have to find that level at which somebody will agree with what the advice and the implementation strategy is. You know, if, if I'm asking them to save too much, into an investment to meet a goal, even though mathematically that's what it's required. You know, maybe I've got to negotiate down to where their comfort level is. And so I think there's a lot of that that goes on in my, you know, in my personal life. I, you know, I, I always look at uh, places where I've negotiated and there's sometimes I didn't think you know, negotiation was possible. I was buying a business several years ago and the bank was just slow walking. And, uh, you know, we had, you know, they said, oh, these are the terms. This is the, you know, this is the term, this is the interest rate, whatever. 
and it was just taking forever. So I went back to the original buyer and I said, Hey, you know, the bank's really just slow walking this whole thing. Would you be willing to own or finance this? And he goes, yeah, heck yeah. And, uh, so (laughs) we went back to the bank and said, Hey, thanks. You know, uh, we're just going to go a different direction. They go, well, you know, you realize you're going to lose your uh, $5,000 earnest money. I said, that's, that's fine. <laughs> so we're going to make up so much money in the better interest rate. They go, Oh, what did you get? And I told them, they go like, Oh, we can match that. I'm like, well, I didn't even know that was something I could negotiate on. You know, now I felt worse about the bank because they didn't enter into a negotiation with me. They left yeah. me with a worse situation than what, what they were willing to do that, you know, now it really didn't seem fair. So now I felt even better by leaving. So I think one of the things that when we're dealing with people, it would seem is make sure that we're being upfront, being ethical, just out of the gate. You know, even if somebody's not willing to negotiate, don't take advantage. Well, I mean, and that's the well, that's one of the dangerous things is, you know, those of us who are in the behavioral science world are kind of like use these skills for good and not evil. So, you know, you want to be operating ethically at all times. And when it comes to a good outcome in negotiation or a satisfactory outcome, trust is truly required. Maybe not when you're, you know, on a beach in Mexico in that one off deal that's going to be done in 30 seconds. But when when you have to deal with someone for more than 30 seconds, the amount of trust increases as the stakes are higher, as the consequences last longer, as the relationships need to be used. And so I've been in that exact situation where I walked away from a bank because I went, you shouldn't have been withholding from me so much. I don't trust you. And now I'm going to your competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that trust is so important. Doesn't mean you have to be fully transparent, put all your cards on the table, but people will start to read when there are tactics and when there are underhanded strategies involved. And, you know, I have a, a former Dutch colleague who said to me, one of their sayings was, trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. So it takes a long time to build up, but it's gone in an instant. So you need to be really careful because if you lose that trust, you're losing a customer probably for life. You're losing that transaction, which could have repercussions for a really long time. Uh, and so trust is one of the key ingredients of a successful negotiation. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I was negotiating on selling a business and, um, you know, on the other side of the table, the buyer in this case was, um, going out of his way to point things out to me that I didn't know nor bring up that were benefits to me that I was entitled to, um, you know, and say, Hey, well, I'm going to make sure that I pay you for this. And I went, wow, you. You didn't have to, you could have never said that. I would have never known about it. I would have never been upset by it. I would have totally accepted it. And this would have, it would have never been something we discussed. It was like, well, I mean, why would I not? And, and it's, it was so telling to me because I had to, I had to share a laugh with him and say, well, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't not do that because you have integrity, but so many people would like a lot, probably most people would. And that from that point forward made the rest of the negotiation so easy because I was able to not worry at all about if I was getting screwed over. It it didn't cross my mind. The only, you know, and I think almost like, no, I did trust this person so much before, but once he proved to me and said, wow, man, this guy is going to actually not, he's not only going to not go out of his way to harm me, he is going to go out of his way to help me when he doesn't have to at his own disadvantage, just because that's the 
high integrity thing to do. I don't need to worry about getting a raw deal. I can actually now show him. Yeah, yeah, I can show him that same courtesy in this negotiation. And it made the whole process so much smoother and quicker. Well, and that's just it. What you did is you reciprocated. And the best way to provoke that reciprocity is by starting by being trustworthy yourself, you then are going to evoke that out of the other person. And so as a result, you know, we talk about the value pie, right? The more value, the bigger the pie, the more there is to divide up. He's like, hey, I'm going to throw some stuff in the pie. And you go, oh, okay, well, I didn't realize you were throwing that stuff in. Let me throw some stuff in too. And now you have this much more collaborative scenario where you have this massive pie now, way more value to be dividing up. And I suspect that person that you dealt with is now also somebody that you recommend to others or that you speak highly of and all of that kind of stuff too. Like I went into business, I went into business now seven years ago and for the first five years, I didn't even have a website. Um, and it was all because I had former clients who went, hey, we want to keep working with you. And it was because I demonstrated that I was someone trustworthy. They trusted me. And then word of mouth was just on fire. So I didn't have to do any marketing in my business, all because I was a trustworthy, collaborative negotiating with negotiator with them. It wasn't because I was dropping my prices. It was because they went, we know we're going to get value out of this individual. Whatever we pay, we know she's going to deliver something above and beyond. Yeah, I think that that is a decision to live up to values of integrity, honesty, trustworthiness. Unfortunately, not everyone has has those values, yeah. right? You know, if this if if all three of us clearly clearly do, not to pat ourselves on the back, but if this conversation resonated with anyone, that's it's likely a value they share. And I think that so much of that is simply making a conscious decision at every moment and every day to say, I'm going to act with integrity. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be a trustworthy person. I'm going to do the right thing because all of the temptations of the world are to do the opposite. There's not a short-term reward for being trustworthy in most cases. There's not a short-term reward for acting with integrity. Most of the time, there's a short-term reward for acting without integrity. You know, seeing a $100 bill that's laying on the sidewalk and just picking it up and putting it in my pocket and not worrying about who might have dropped it. There's a short-term reward and there's no downside. But to act with integrity has a long-term reward. And and it's hard, I think, in in decision-making to always keep a focus on that long-term reward. But, you know, Sean and I obviously think decision-making is can be so broadly applied, like the skills that we develop around decision-making can be applied in every aspect of our life, whether it's our careers, our marriages, our friendships, our hobbies, anything. If we're better at decision-making, we're better at everything. And I think that that's probably true to a large extent when it comes to negotiations. You know, we, we even negotiate with ourselves sometimes, but I'm curious to hear from you what as a negotiator, how do you defeat bad decision making during the negotiation process? So I would say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
And so when I'm going into any type of negotiation, I'm preparing, I'm doing my homework is who am I dealing with? What are the circumstances that I'm dealing with? You know, is there a certain industry I need to learn a little bit more about or a customer or a client I need to learn more about? So I understand what is valuable to those individuals because people will say, wow, you're so good at thinking on your feet. And it's because I spent way more time preparing in advance so I could think on my feet and I can make those quick decisions because I've already thought it through five different ways before the conversation even started. I'm thinking about, well, if things go this way and if they respond this way, then I'm going to do this approach. If they respond a different way, then I'm going to use that approach. So I spend a lot of time when I'm working with corporate clients, we will sit in a, in a boardroom for hours or even in a Zoom room for hours talking about how could things go on the other side? Tell me a little bit more about the individuals that you deal with. Tell me a little bit more about their objectives and what it is, that, the challenges that they're facing. So we have that massive big picture and then we can go, okay, based on what I know, here's how I think this is going to play out. And if it plays out differently, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you were to punch something into Google Maps, right, and it's going to give you multiple routes to get to the same destination. If there's an obstacle in one, if there's too much traffic in another one, if a road closure happens, you got another way to get there without going, oh, no, what do I do now? And getting stuck in traffic forever. The same can happen as we make our decisions. If you prepare and you know those routes in advance and those potential, you know, openings for yourself, then it's much easier to get to your final destination. You may have to take the scenic route once in a while. You may have to, you, you might be able to be the most efficient sometimes, but you need to understand what does the landscape look like? before you can just start weaving your way through traffic and not knowing where you're going. Yeah, I, I think being prepared is, is a, certainly a key because then, then you know what you're willing to give, what you're willing to accept, you know, the facts. You don't have to suspend the conversation and say, well, let me get back to you and then sort of rebuild and start start over. Have you, yeah. When you think about big negotiations that you've, that you've been involved in, uh, what's been some of the difficult decisions you've had to make when, when doing, being involved in negotiations? For me, I, I, the decisions are always in the hands of my clients. So I am not going to be there conducting the negotiation on their behalf, mostly because there's a, a trust issue. If some stranger comes in at the last minute, they're like, who is this person? Where'd she come from? So I'm usually coaching people through the process. And the hardest part for me is leaving my personal feelings at the door because when I'm hired by a client, I want them to win so badly. I want the best for them and so on, but they hire me because I'm objective, right? So they hire me because I'm not blinded by being involved in their day-to-day -day and being involved in a certain political decision internally or whatever it is. So that for me is the hardest part, just to continue to, to maintain my objectivity to go, Folks, this is what the landscape looks like right now. If you go down path A, here are the potential consequences. If you go down path B, here are the risks in that one as well. Let me help you weigh out the pros and cons versus I want to go, this is the one that I really want you to do, <laughs> but it need, you need to live with the decision at the end of the day. Yeah. You, need, you need to feel comfortable with that risk. Um, and so I, I try to, to maintain that objectivity and help coach them through something that they're going to be happy with at the end of the day. I used to feel as an advisor, I used to joke that I don't give any advice ever. And I'd, I've kind of come off that as a hard stance, right? But the point of the joke. What do you mean, what do you mean as an advisor, okay. you don't give advice? Exactly. The point, well, per, <laughs> partly it was to get people that, what do you mean? And then okay, I, you to know, ask that question. Um, but I don't say it anymore. And, but the the reason behind it was like, what I realized was, 99% only a small group of people are going to do something just because I tell them to. Yeah. Even though they're paying me. Right. So what I would do is I would have to 
I would guide them towards decisions and I would offer them choices and I would allow them to choose. And so I went for, for I don't know, you know, it, it, it seemed to have decent results, but I would, instead of saying, Hey, should I, um, you know, should I buy this house or not? Right. Whatever. Should I, should I finance 50% or 30%? What should I do here? I wouldn't just say, Oh, do 30. Right. Because nobody's going to listen. I mean, they, they might, but they, they're, they, it, it seems almost, it, people would dismiss it more often than I would expect, even though they ask the question. And so I'd say, well, if you do 50, this is what's going to happen. If you do 30, this is what's going to happen. Here are the pros and cons. And I would be their guide through a decision-making filter, process, journey, and then say, what decision do you want to make? And so some of that job was eliminating the uh, you know, slimming down the number of choices that they had, right? Um, so there are some choices that have almost infinite options or decisions. What do I invest in? Well, that's infinite, right? That, yeah. that you have all the options. So if I can at least narrow it to two or three and go based on everything you've told me, I think here are your options, here are the pros and cons, but you get to make that last choice, that last decision. Because a lot of the advice that I give, like, I can't then snap my fingers and make you do it, right? Yeah. I can give you advice. And even if the client says, oh, I'm going to do that, and they believe it wholeheartedly, they've still got to go do it. And so I wanted them to have all of the energy and all of the ownership of the decision. Like I said, it's, it's, it's not a hard and fast rule. But I say that to say I can totally relate because it's like sometimes in that process, I would st- feel like, well, I've got to present two options so that they can make a choice. And they yeah. would still, I would be clearly like, you know, showing them, hey, probably it's option A that we should go with, but option B is still here. And they'd go, hmm, yeah, great. Option B it is. <laughs> no, that's not what I wanted. But, you know, people are, people are going to make their own choices. There's two reasons why it usually works. So behaviorally, there's something that you said. You said, based on what I heard you say, right? So right now you're using their words to your advantage. And so people are more accountable to what they say versus what you say. So you could say, look, here's what the market says, or here's what I think you should do. And they're going to go, I don't care what you think I should do. Exactly. Even though I'm asking you, I really am just going to do what I think I should do. So if you can say, based on your risk profile, based on what you shared with me about what you want to do with your risk or what your goals are or something like that, they're like, oh, he was listening to me. This is what I said. Therefore, I'm more highly engaged to what he's about to say to me. So you're using that. And then you're using the choice, right? So People love to have autonomy. They want to feel as though they had some choice in the matter because it makes us feel really good to say I had control over my own decisions. I mean, I use the analogies all the time with children. It's like when I'm dealing with my nieces or my godchildren and I go, hey, here's your choice for dinner. Do you want the cauliflower or the broccoli? They're both vegetables. I don't yeah. care which one they choose. And they, they're right? both gross too. Maybe just not. But I mean, I'm in charge really of their decision-making process, but I'm making them feel as though they're in charge. As long as they choose a vegetable, I don't care. You may go, okay, well, they have this risk profile, so I'm going to offer them these options based yeah. on that risk profile. And I'm going to make them feel really good about those options. Yeah, clearly the person who defines the choices is the person in control of the negotiation for sure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I know there are a lot of, and I want to hear these from you. I, I know there are a lot of negotiation, I don't want to call them tricks, but strategies or tactics or 
or, or concepts that that are need to be present in a good negotiation. I remember, but it it reminds me of one time that I was just played in a negotiation and didn't didn't realize it was happening until I was hip deep in it. My daughter and I were on a, a trip together. She was about t- ten, I think, ten or eleven. I know that I laughed because like, I know the story. Love it. Like, I love yeah, this story. And and she was like, "Daddy, we should get a puppy." I'm like, "No, sweetheart, we're not, we're not going to get a puppy. We don't. We're not going to get a puppy." Okay, but we should. You know what? We should get a. We should get a puppy though. I said, "No, we're we're not going to." She goes, "If we did get a puppy, what would you name it?" I said, "I." It doesn't matter because we're not going to get one. She goes, yeah, but what would you name it if we had one? I said, I don't know. You know, like Skip, Skippy. And she goes, oh, what would Skippy look like? <laughs> I go, I don't, it doesn't matter. We're not getting a dog named Skippy. She goes, would it be like a little brown dog or a white dog? Or, you know, what? what are you? I said, I don't know. Just like a medium-sized, little, you know, brown dog, I guess. Would he do tricks, Daddy? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. What kind of tricks would he do? <laughs> Before long, we've described this dog and what it looked like and where it was going to sleep and what tricks it would do. And, you know, <laughs> and shortly thereafter, guess what? We got a puppy, you know. How skip today. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, damn it. She is playing me. This 10-year-old is schooling me on negotiation, just making me visualize what the other side of this decision looks like. Uh, you know, and, and she, uh, she's an attorney now, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I totally unsurprisingly to everyone who's ever met her, that's what, yeah, she not, not surprisingly at all. So when, when you look at negotiation and, and I don't want to put it in a negative context and, and call them tricks, but, but, but strategies for effective negotiation, you know, and, and, and how do we, how do we utilize these uh, methods, let's say in negotiation. Well, I mean, one that she used was speaking in the hypothetical, there's no harm, right? Because you're not committing in your head. I'm not committing to anything. So if we did get a dog dad, um, those are the types of things where you're now saying it out loud. It's your words. So you think consciously I'm not committing to anything, but at a subconscious level, it's there on your brain. You're thinking about this dog and all the things, and you've already visualized it. So being able to kind of make the subconscious more comfortable with that reality certainly leads to a much removing a lot of the obstacles in that sense. And that's one of the things that I actually advise people on when they get no. For me, no is the start of the negotiation, not the end. So when I get a no, one of the first questions I ask is, how could you? Under what, like they say, we can't do that. Well, under what circumstances could you do that? What would need to change? Hypothetically speaking, if you could wave a magic wand, what would go away to make that happen? But now we're speaking into reality, something that actually could happen. And we may actually be uncovering really great solutions for the both of us by just removing some of the obstacles. And so it can be a very productive conversation. It doesn't have to be manipulative. It doesn't have to be malicious in any way. That's certainly one of the major strategies that is used on a regular basis. The other thing that I think is very, very common is just asking questions. So understanding what is the why behind this individual's words? What are What is their purpose for being here today? Why is it that they're trying to understand, like that they want this from you? There's a reason why they're giving you the time of day. 
there's a, like, I mean, I talk to folks who are like, oh, I deal with the largest global retailer on the planet. And, you know, they tell me they barely have any time for you. I'm like, well, they, if they barely have any time and yet they're still creating time in their schedule, they need you for a reason. There's something that they need from you. So taking the time to reflect on that and being able to to package it back out to them is another way that you need to make sure that you get people on board. So starting with a really great why. I use an example often where I used to negotiate with Walmart buyers in the cosmetics department when I worked for L'Oreal a zillion years ago. And I could say, hey, I need you to buy a million units of this new mascara. And they could go, oh, you're, you're so greedy. What All of you come in here asking me for all of this stuff. You think I have these endless budgets. But what if I thought about it from her perspective? What if I went, hey, I have a way for you to increase your entire cosmetic department sales. Now she'd be going, okay, tell me a little bit more. So I have this product that when people buy it, they buy 10 other products that have nothing to do with, with my company, but they're going to make your entire cosmetic department sales go up. Okay. Tell me more about it. Well, this product was created for 24 to 35 year olds, the same people who are walking down your aisle, your target market. Okay. Now you've really got me interested Fotini. You're telling me it's created something for you, for my target market. You're going to increase my entire cosmetic department sales. You're thinking about things from my perspective. Well, now I want to know more about it. And now I can say, okay, here's how you do it. All you need to do is buy a million units of this mascara and people will be buying eye makeup remover and cotton pads and all these other things that I don't get, that I don't benefit from, but certainly you do. Now we can have a conversation about it. Maybe it won't be a million. Maybe it'll be a little less or a little more, but I got her head nodding instead of going, here's what I need to get out of this. When you go in there greedy and they, all they hear is I want, I want, I want, they go, whatever. I don't want to hear from you because that's just greedy. So you've got to be able to frame things from the other party's perspective. It's how do you not balance that? Players. How do you balance that with the risk of coming off as salesy? Because there are the, you know, the, the worst manipulators also know that trick. Right. And I, I would imagine, you know, that th there's a, there's a fine line between manipulation and uh, leadership and someone who's m manipulative is going to say, Oh, well, I'll just tell Fatina whatever she wants to hear that way she can help me. So how do you balance that without coming across as manipulative? And I guess this kind of references what we were talking about earlier, which is someone who's not manipulative is probably going to not come off that way anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, sincerity is the number one answer to that because people can often see through those types of things. So if you are trying to convince me of something that I know to not be true, if you're trying to convince me that my entire cosmetic department sales are going to go up, even though I know they won't, or I've had experience in this arena, you can't put a, a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. And also it goes back to that trust arrives on foot. So are, is this the first time we're meeting and you think you know me? I don't think so. But if this is the first time we're meeting and you've spent a a little bit of time asking me a little bit more about my business and learning a little bit more about me and sharing some information that might be valuable to me before you go into launching into this negotiation. That's a different story. And so, you know, I remember when I moved from cosmetics into food, for example, whole different set of buyers, people who didn't know me from, from Adam. So I now had to build trust from scratch. My very first meeting with a brand new national Walmart buyer. And I went, I'd like to know a little bit more about you and I've got some information to share with you. And, um, and I, I asked her a question at some point and I said, Oh, I didn't want to interrupt you. Did you have something to ask? She goes, no, she goes, you're never going to know anything about me. I was like, okay. 
And I just spent a little bit more time asking some questions. I heard her sneezing. Oh, I have allergies too. Do you, are you suffering from allergies? I have allergies to cats. We started talking about her cats. We started getting to know one <laughs> another. I ended up getting, by the time I got back to my office, an hour commute back to the office, I had an email from her going, Fotini, I wish every uh, person I dealt with was as prepared as you are. It was such a great meeting. I look forward to working with you. And my peers were like, what kind of a spell did you cast on this woman? <laughs> and I said, I just an interest in her. Yeah. I asked her some personal questions and there's science to back that up too. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Robert Cialdini. He's like the godfather of all things persuasion. Yeah. He's written a bunch of very successful books on the subject, but he's done some really interesting studies too that focus on if you build some likability first, because the temptation is let's get down to business right away, especially now in this Zoom world where we are now conditioned to go, okay, the camera's on, let's get down to business before I have to get into my next meeting. In the real world, in the live world, you know, we spend some time shaking hands, we might grab a coffee and so on, but when there's not a, none of those frills in this Zoom room, well, now all of a sudden we're tempted to get down to business right away. Spend a few minutes just saying, hi, how was the weekend? What do you think of this crazy winter weather? You know, just a little bit of get to know you stuff goes a really long way in building that little bit of rapport and trust. It doesn't have to take years. It, you yeah. can maximize the minutes that you have with folks. You know, I saw Sean one time pull off a, a pretty smooth negotiation trick. We were he went with me to go buy um, a truck and, you know, I, I must've been, I guess I was in high school and we're at the dealership and um, they've kind of presented their final offer. Right. And they slide it over on a piece of paper. And before we had even walked in, he had said to me, Hey, I know you're buying this, but just let me handle it. I was like, all right, I, I trust you here. And so they slide it over to him. And I don't remember what the dollar amount was, you know, but I, I knew I could afford it and I would have just said yes. And instead he stares <laughs> for an uncomfortably long time at the piece of paper. <laughs> and I'm sitting there everything I can to not ignore what he told me in the parking lot, which was to just let him handle it. And I wanted to just stop him and say, dad, okay, we'll take it, you know, thinking that they're going to not sell us the truck if we ask for too much or something like that. And finally, after what was like, felt like, you know, five full minutes of silence, the salesman, all right, how about we give you a thousand bucks off? And he goes, okay. <laughs> what? It was that easy? <laughs> that was it? He didn't even ask. He didn't even ask. It was amazing. So a couple of years ago, I was going to do the same thing. I'm like, obviously now one time watching one car purchase, I'm an expert. So I go to sell and I think it was maybe, it was either that truck or like the very next car that I bought. I was going to go sell it. And I went into the dealership and I knew that they were going to offer me a, a price. And, and I knew that it wasn't going to be super high because if, if I want to get the best price, I got to sell it private party. I just didn't want to mess with all that. So I go into the dealership. I'm not even looking to buy a car. I'm just looking to sell this vehicle. And I go in, I say, hey man, this is the car that I have. And I think that the value was somewhere around fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars something like that. Kelly Blue Book, like if I had sold it to a private party. So I know I'm not going to get that much, but I'm thinking, you know, a little bit less than that. Maybe, you know, 13, 12, I don't know, somewhere in that range. And the guy asked me all the questions and he slides me the piece of paper. And I involuntarily adhered to this trick that my dad had showed me. Because it was $8,000. <laughs> I was actually genuinely shocked and mad. And I just stared at it. 
and I stuck with it, right? It got super uncomfortable and nobody was saying anything. And I was like, all right, well, you know, maybe I can get 9,000 if I just don't say anything, you know, I'll just, and finally, after way too long, the guy goes, is there something, something you have a question on? And I go, nope. And it stays quiet again. And then he asked me, uh, so, so what do you want to do? And I said, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, this was not how this was supposed to go. You were supposed to immediately give me more money. Um, <laughs> so I don't really know what to say here. And I, I just said, well, you know, is this the best you can do? Something like that. And he goes, uh, yeah, man, this is CarMax. And, <laughs> and I didn't know that they didn't negotiate. <laughs> so I looked like such an idiot. <laughs> but then I made up for it when I bought my house. I brought, I, this is like the only like good negotiation I can hang my hat on ever. So I learned from what my you know dad did when he bought that car. He was like, I want to be the least committed person to getting this deal done. Cause if I'm the least desperate person to getting this deal done, which he was perfect yeah. for in that role, cause he wasn't even buying it. Right. He didn't even care if I'm the least committed person, then I'm willing to walk away. And if I'm willing to walk away, then I'm not going to accept a bad deal. Right. right. Which I thought was really smart. So when I went to go buy my house, I was like, well, this is a, you know, probably the second most, significant financial transaction between besides purchasing a business that I've ever made. So I need to be willing to walk away. And everything in that whole process, I realized every single other person was desperate to get it done, right? The real estate agent, the title company, the lender, the seller, they all wanted to get it done. And I realized, oh man, like they think I also am desperate to get yeah. it done. So they keep coming just like anyone who's bought a house with all of these demands or, you know, anytime I asked for a price reduction, my real estate agent was like, oh, no, don't do that. They might pull the offer. So when it started, you know, he was like, well, I, you know, they have it listed for this. So I think you should offer that. And I went, I'm not going to offer what it's listed for He goes, well, you know, in this environment. And I said, nah, offer 10% less. And he was like, I don't recommend that. I said, I don't really care. Because if I don't buy it, who cares? And he offers it and they come back and they meet me in the middle. And I go, see, I just got 5% for free. No, thanks to you. And then um, they go to like, you know, do the inspection. Right. And I said, oh, well, I want another, you know, 5% off. And at that point, I guess I pushed them too far. They were like, oh, no, we got, you know, 50 new offers waiting. You know, everybody and their mother wants to buy this house. So we're not going, you know, we're not going to budge at all. And I was like, all right, whatever. I. I will, you know, I'll take a little bit less. My real estate agent goes, what's the like lease you'd take? I said, oh, you know, 4% off or whatever. And he goes, man, I don't think that's a good idea. If they say no, the deal's done. You know, you lose, you know, your whatever $400 deposit or uh, home inspection, whatever. So who cares? You know, 400 bucks, if you're going to be this way and I'm going to do a bad deal, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Sure enough, they kill it. A month and a half later, they call me back or my real estate agent calls me back and he says, hey, um, so they're going to offer you literally everything that you asked for in the first place. And they're going to fix the things that are on the inspection that you were that were wrong. So they're going to give you more than you even wanted. And he goes, but the key is uh, they need to know by today. So I hung up 
and I waited till tomorrow just to be petty. And I said, I'll do it. (laughs) And nothing has made me feel like more powerful than that moment in my life. Well, I mean, you've just demonstrated why one of the many reasons why I've called my book, Say Less, Get More. So it's like that quiet, right? That that I'm not eager. I'm not jumping on this in this second. Um, that that demonstrates power, right? The fact that you are you now are giving the perception that I can afford to walk away. I'm not eager, desperate, you know, talking myself out of a deal because that's another really big one. You know, Sean demonstrated that in the first example. He just sat there quietly and then they offer another thousand bucks. But the temptation for everybody is I need to say something. I need to fill this void. And you know what you end up filling it with? Money that is coming out of your pockets. That's usually how these things go down. Um, I would say one of the other things that it brings to mind is, you know, Sean, you asked about some of the other tactics or, or strategies in negotiation. And this one, it's it's controversial for a bit of a strange reason. There's one book I can think of that that defies this, but the the conventional wisdom, the science, the you know every other negotiation book that I've ever read says the person who goes first gets the best deal. And so being able to go in, if you had gone in with your truck scenario and said, "Hey, I need." 15,000 or 16,000 for this and then been quiet, they would have been like, how do I get close to 16,000? How do I get them away from that 16,000? What happens is you've now anchored the number 16,000. That's the number that we're dancing around. And so what happens is if you can think of an anchor on a boat, when you drop an anchor, the anchor will keep the boat from drifting very far. We're going to stay in the vicinity of this anchor. And so being able to do that and then be quiet and not talk yourself out of it, they're going to start making offers to get closer and closer to that. So when you anchored in the house scenario, here's what I want. I want that 10% less now. And then you're being quiet and they're going, well, how do I, how do I get them back to this? Well, I'm going to throw in even the repairs on top of this other thing. Um, you know, those are the types of things that work for us because we're planting messages on people's subconscious all the time, as well as our own. So if you allow them to get in your head and go, you must take this, you must be desperate and eager to take this. Well, then you're going to talk yourself out of a deal. But if you can be confident and anchor your position and stay with that and just be that extra little bit of silent, it gets you so much further ahead in all different types of negotiations. Yeah, that seems to be a big a big theme with your your message is is to be confident, but also not to be desperate. And yeah. I think I, if to me it seems like that's a lot easier said than done. As a lot of you <laughs> yeah. know, great advice is um, easier said than done. But as as a negotiation expert, what what piece of advice would you give to people who are trying to defeat bad decision-making in their negotiations in the future in their own lives? I would say it's it's really the art of just learning how to shut up. So one, I mean, the benefit of it is obviously you, you've seen it firsthand. You, you won't be talking yourself out of, a, out of a deal, but it's also being able to take the time in the moment. Because what happens is when you're making these decisions, if I'm making the decision in advance, if I'm making it like 10 hours before or 10 days before, I can sit down in front of the fireplace, I can think it through, I can write in my notes, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm calm mind and rational thought all there. Change the circumstances, put me in a boardroom where I'm facing somebody now and I feel like there's a big clock ticking in front of yeah. me. My rational thought process completely changes. So what can you do, first of all, in advance to think it through before you're under that stressful condition? But then when you are under that stressful condition to be able to go, no, I'm going to take my time right now. 
I'm going to take a moment and I might even say, you know what? I need a minute to think that through. I'm taking ownership of the time in this room. I'm going to look confident because so many people think, well, if I'm not saying something, they're going to think I'm stupid. But the truth the of the matter is you can own yeah, you can own the moment, both in your posture, in your facial expression, in your tone, when you say, I need a minute to think about that, right? So if you can do that in such a way where you just buy yourself a little bit of time for the nerves to go away and the rational thought to come back into your brain, you are going to thank yeah. yourself because you are going to make a much better decision. I love that so much. One thing that I've tried to focus on, not, not exclusively in negotiations, but important conversations, is I'll notice that I stop breathing. Mm -hmm. I go, oh my gosh, what? I'm holding, I'm literally holding my breath, holding my breath. It's yep. so, it's so easy to do. And I'm not that, it's not that important. I'm not that scared or nervous, but I'm not totally comfortable. And so I'm yep. literally listening to this person, waiting for what I'm going to say and not even remembering to do the one thing that I never think about doing and need to do to live. <laughs> Just breathe. <laughs> yeah. Just breathe, yeah. Some man. of my... Some of my clients, in fact, even my MBA students, like I used to, I don't have one around here. I used to um, hand out little business cards at the end of all of my keynotes and in, in all of my MBA classes that had a little pause button on the back of it. And so my students would tell me that they had pause buttons all over their house. One was like, one student was like, I have one on my mirror. I have one on my night table. I have one on my computer. And I'm like, I'm really curious. What's the night table one for? He goes, so I don't get into fights with my wife. Oh, <laughs> so funny. they look at this little visual pause button and go, I need to just take a moment to breathe and to, cause I've associated yeah. with meditative breath. So I'm like, just pause and take a meditative breath. And the rational thought will come back in because when we're faced with those moments of stress, we have the cave person response. So when you were faced with a threat back in our cave person days, what would happen is your breath would get shallow. Your palms would get sweaty. That adrenal response is what would allow you to run like hell to get away from whatever that threat was. And when we're faced with a threat to our ego, a threat to our comfort, a threat to our well-being, we have those same physiological responses today. The heart starts to beat faster. The breath starts to get more shallow. So, you know, some of my students will have a note that says breathe. You know, if you're somebody who's doing a lot of Zoom meetings, yeah. have a little sticky note that says breathe or stop or shut up right next to the camera so that you are thinking about, you know, maintaining your composure and the rational thought will come back in eventually. Yeah, I think so much of that you know, it goes back to exercising, working out, like putting yourself in, in those situations where you're kind of getting that primal, you know, intensity off of your plate for the day. And then you can move forward through the rest of the day with some sense of calm. But, yep. you know, the idea of making decisions before the moment arises Oh man, that re resonates so much with me because Sean, that's like, that's everything that we do for our clients, right? Is to say, hey, you know, um, if we're going to make an investment plan here, um, we should decide now exactly what we're going to do if these things happen. Um, and, it, and it could even be a house purchase, right? Which is kind of one thing that I, I had done in my own negotiation was I knew what I was not willing to accept, right? That's both a, both a negotiation and a financial decision that I would work through with a client normally is to say, okay, we need to decide right now exactly what the maximum purchase price is and then yeah. go look for a house that's below that. Don't go look for a house that's at it because then you're going to get, exactly. you know, three weeks into the process and then that, that you know, seller is not going to come down and you've already emotionally attached yourself to the house. Yeah. So, and you get swept up in that momentum too of, well, yeah. it's just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, 
I, I love when I'm able to get someone to do that with their investments because every now and then people will, will tell me, well, you know, that's fine for now. And I'll say, or, you know, some version where I can tell "Ah, they're not really committed long-term to what we just decided to do. And I said, well, you say for now, like, what is that, you know, what would have to happen for you to no longer feel as comfortable as you are today with what you've decided? Hmm. Well, you know, if the market goes down or, you know, if it goes way up or whatever, if the Fed raises rates, who knows if any sort of thing outside of my control happens, well, then I might want to reevaluate. Hmm. Well, depending on what they say, I might not even agree that that's worth doing. But a lot of times I'm able to say, oh, well, let's decide now if what we're going to do is make a change based on these external factors. Let's set the parameters today and make a decision now. So if your plan is I'm going to change my investment strategy if the market goes down, well, how much does it have to go down in order for you to change? change Right. Yeah, right. How much does that have to go down? And then what would you change it to? <laughs> that's yeah. that, I found and, that and that's when what do you, people... And when do you revert back to the original plan? Yeah. What's that trigger point? And once they start yeah. seeing all those types of things, I had that situation early on in my career. One time the, uh, I, I built an investment plan for somebody that they implemented. And then shortly thereafter, they just undid it all. And what I realized was that they weren't really committed to that plan. They weren't committed to what we had, in a sense, agreed to. And so I started asking people once, you know, we we started building investment strategy plans. It said, you know, what do you what do you like about what this is going to do for you? What do you what are you happiest about? What do you think this is going to be the biggest benefit of doing this? And really helping understand. And sometimes if they didn't know, then I knew I hadn't done my job. If I said, you know, what do you what do you think this is going to help you do? I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, they <laughs> made a decision to, to appease you. Let's go back and make you. sure. Yeah, yeah they, right. They made a decision to appease you, not to actually commit to that plan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they just wanted to shut you up for a minute and feel good in the moment. Right. And then, <laughs> then if there's still the follow-through to deal with. You know, and that's another one of the, the biggest challenges in negotiation. It's one thing to get someone to agree, then are they actually going to follow through on that? How do you make sure that they follow through on it? And it is by asking some of those questions, by getting them to confirm that they are going to do it, by getting it to come out of their mouth instead of yours, by asking the question, who, what, when, where, and how, you know, we say we're going to do this, who's going to do it, who's going to enact it, well, who's the first person, when is that going to take place? By being able to ask those questions and fully form the action plan, that's when you know you have commitment or not. And if it's or not, then you need to go back to the drawing board and come up with a new agreement. Fatini, thank you so much for talking to us. Tell us how we can uh, get your book and contact you. Well, the book is available everywhere. Amazon's probably the easiest spot, but all major retailers have it as well. It's called Say Less, Get More. And uh, you can find me. I hang out a lot on Instagram and on LinkedIn. I've shortened the name to make it easy to find. So it's at Fotini Icon everywhere you go. Uh, And the website's at FotiniIcon.com as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. Appreciate you uh, talking to us. It's been my pleasure. Go ahead. <laughs> you always start the takeaways. No, you could start the takeaway. Go ahead. What, right. did you, what did you learn from that discussion uh, with Fotini? I like how we just stared at each other for a moment. Um, <laughs> Well, I took away, well, I, I really liked the part where she told you to shut up. 
That was one she of told me to show. Yeah, she was like one of her. Good I don't think tits. that was directed at me specifically. That oh, was she, a, I, a tactic no. she was employing. Uh, how I remember it was she was telling that was more focused for you. She was that was the personal advice section of the <laughs> is that, conversation. Is that the takeaway from you. Yeah. No. In all seriousness, I really, I really think there's a lot to be um, gained by staying silent mm -hmm. in, in a lot of cases. There, there's a phrase that I've used with people called uh, talking past the close. And I think it, I think it's relevant when you're looking at negotiations that if you've got somebody that's at a point of agreement, then she's right. Shut up. Don't keep talking past that point of agreement. I think that's a, that was a big learning. Maybe even more precisely, it's don't talk when you are unsure what someone's thinking. Like a lot of times talking past the close occurs not because someone has uh, already verbally agreed, but they've agreed in their head. You just haven't given them the opportunity to tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a chance you can undo the whole the whole thing. The, th the things I, p I picked up from what she had said was really around building the relationships up front, you know, spending time doing that, uh, building trust by showing integrity, uh, asking a lot of questions. Uh, you know, tell me more about that. Uh, like, you know, we got a lot of that from the uh, Michael Sherlock episode. The uh, and then just knowing when to stop, as we were saying. So, uh, those are the big things that I got. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.